Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We've got a delightful one today. You know, for a change, my guest is Mark Leibovich, author of the new number one New York Times bestseller, Thank you for your servitude, Donald Trump's Washington, and the price of submission. I know Mark because he did a profile of me for the New York Times Magazine, where he worked for years and years, in 2016, and we've been friends ever since, although he kind of screwed me. Now, let me me explain. He had come to Minnesota to follow me around for a few days. This is August 2016, and he's driving me to the state fair. Minnesota has the best state fair. Love love our state fair. Well, two days earlier, Anthony Weiner had been caught sexting with a woman, not his wife, while laying in bed with his, his toddler son. As you might recall, this was kind of the last straw. This is after he had tried to rehabilitate himself. Now, Mark had recently done a Q&A for the Times Magazine with Weiner. And that morning, a New York City radio station had asked them if they could do an interview with them. And driving up to the fair, Mark was complaining about being looked to as an authority on Anthony Weiner. So five minutes later, we walk up to the Farmers Union booth and I get a call on my cell phone from my my son, Joe. Now, Joe is a crazy, crazy, rabid Minnesota Vikings fan, something he he got from his his dad. And I answer the phone, and Joe is absolutely distraught. My my son tells me that that day in practice, this is preseason, Teddy Bridgewater, our number one draft, the guy who's going to be our franchise quarterback for the next 10, 15 years, Bridgewater sustained a freak non-contact, maybe career-ending knee injury. Leibovich, who is, is from Boston and a huge Patriots fan, but a guy who loves watching the NFL, and a few years later writes a book, Big Game, about the NFL. Mark's watching me. Now, I'm distraught. I've been a Vikings fan since 1961, when as an expansion team, we won our first NFL game against the Chicago Bears. I listened to that game on the radio because it wasn't televised. Vikings fans, along with Buffalo Bills fans, are the longest-suffering fans in the NFL. Both teams have lost four Super Bowls, and neither has won one. Now, I'm distraught. 
I'm literally going, no, Jesus, no, non-contact, oh, Jesus, oh, no. So finally, I get off the phone, and I'm reeling. And Mark asked me what happened, and I told him. My son just told me that Teddy Bridgewater just sustained a terrible knee injury that may be career-ending. And he asked something like, how did that make you feel? And because we had just been talking about Anthony Weiner, and because we are just two months away from the 2016 presidential election, I say, it's like finding out that Hillary's having an affair with Anthony Weiner. So the next day, Mark tweets out, Al Franken, upon hearing of Vikes QB Teddy Bridgewater's knee injury, quote, it's like finding out Hillary's having an affair with Anthony Weiner. Now, we had agreed that he was writing a New York Times magazine profile. There was nothing about tweeting and naked, nothing about the context, which is that he had just spent the previous 20 minutes bitterly complaining about being thought of as an Anthony Weiner expert. And because he's a sniveling coward, Mark waited until the next day as he was hightailing it out of town, pushing the tweet button as his plane took off from the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. Now, my team immediately goes into crisis mode. I, I have to make a public abject apology, not just to Hillary, but to every American who's rooting for Hillary to win. Here's how Politico reported it. Senator Al Franken let his comedic past get the better of him on Wednesday, apologizing after joking that an injury to a Minnesota Vikings player was akin to Hillary Clinton having an affair with Anthony Weiner. Well, uh, soon after, Mark called me and made an abject apology himself, which, like a chump, I accepted. And once you accept an apology, it means you've forgiven the person, I, I, I think. Anyway, you know what Stuart Smalley would say? Forgiving is forgetting. Forgiving is forgetting. And actually, Mark and I are, are good friends now. Uh, but as you will learn right at the top of the interview, my political consultant, Mandy Grunwald, has been warning me for years that members of the press are not your friends. It's, it's complicated, isn't it? politics and public life. And that's what Mark's book, Thank You for Your Servitude, is about. It's about how Republicans in Washington, virtually all of them, with just very few exceptions, they caved. They caved to Trump. I saw it myself one after another of my Republican colleagues in the Senate who had nothing but contempt for Trump when he was running, ended up sucking up to him both privately and publicly. Guys like Rubio and Cruz and Lindsey Graham, who Trump had trashed. Remember, Trump called Cruz's wife ugly and said that Cruz's father had something to do with the Kennedy assassination, that Cruz's dad was hanging out <laughs> with Har Lee Harvey Oswald the day before the assassination. These guys had each called Trump a pathological liar. And like Kevin McCarthy and Paul Ryan and Ryan's previous, everybody. Everybody just caved. This book is a great take on the Trump years, which, let's face it, we're still in. And also, it's a really funny book. Both of those are reasons that this is now 
the number one New York Times bestseller in nonfiction. You're going to really enjoy this conversation, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're friends. No, we're not. We're your your oh, that's politician. Right. You're a public figure, and Mandy will be so mad at me. Yeah, that can I you? you gotta, yeah, way. don't. I, hopefully, she's not listening. Mandy Grunwald has uh, been my, uh, you know, political advisor, uh, media consultant. That's what she called mm-hmm. in Washington. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, she tell, tells me uh, that you you're not my friend. Yep, <laughs> I'm, I can't be trusted. I'm I'm a reporter. Um, you know, he might seem personable. Now, let me ask you this, because in this book. Okay, it's uh, thank you for your servitude. You got to say the subtitle too. Okay, oh, sorry. Uh, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Well, it describes it. There yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, in this, it seems like uh, people talk to you. Yeah, it's always been a mystery, but yeah. They, well, they had to because you're in the New York Times. So the New York yeah. Times assigns you to talk to them, I guess. Now, some of the times you're doing a profile of them. Well, you did yeah. a profile of me. I did. That's how, that's how, um, that's how we met. That's right. Yeah. And that's how we almost became friends. Oh, but we couldn't. Yeah. We couldn't. Right. It was it was complete it was frowned upon. So th- these people say stuff to you. Almost all of them are Republicans. Uh and what I loved about this book is that it's basically looking at the Trump administration uh from the standpoint of this horrible, 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 horrible guy. That everyone knows is horrible, 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 and yet everyone gives just gives in, right? And people who know better, people who have real power, real putative leaders of the Republican Party. Not, I mean, you know, it'd be one thing if like you know Joe Schmo from Staten Island decides he doesn't like Donald Trump, but this is everybody in Washington. Yeah, I mean, Republican Washington, with some exceptions, but yes, that's the only uh, exceptions are like Flake. 
A Flake? There, there are some. No, I, I mean, I, I genuinely admire, uh, you know, Jeff Flake and, and his principles. Um, you know, Mark Sanford is another example. Liz Cheney, I think, is a towering example now. Not because, I mean, you know, there's a lot of liberals uh, out there who will immediately say, how dare you say anything nice about Liz Cheney? I mean, because of the Iraq war, because of- look Well, she didn't do the Iraq war. Her dad did. Well- she she had a lot of the hawkish strains that her dad did. I mean, she voted for Trump legislation ninety three percent of the time, more than Meadows. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. No, I mean, look, I, I my feeling is it's never too late to show courage, and and once she decided that she was going to show courage and actually really believed that this was a fight worth, you know, fighting. it wasn't a lack of courage to have her voting the way she did. She's a conservative, Correct. right? She's very yeah. conservative, so that wasn't a lack of courage, right? It was. I mean, although before the uh, January 6th, it was pretty plain who Donald Trump was. I thought so. Yeah. I thought it was plain who he was. I, You know, I was in a room with him maybe eight, nine times mm-hmm. in my time in, in when I was living in New York. Mm-hmm. And it was events that celebrities were invited to when I was in the room with him. Mm-hmm. I never once wanted to talk to him because I could tell. Yeah. Who he was, and I thought it was wasn't it always obvious? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I I agree. I um I actually thought, and I never I never paid any attention to him. I might I mean obviously I knew who he was. I kind of tuned him out. I was happy to tune him out. I remember not reading much about him, although there was a great, great definitive profile of him written in the New Yorker in I think 1998, 99 by Mark Singer, mm-hmm. which I went back and read and still rings true. It was a brilliant profile. But, you know, I was happy not to think about the guy. I mean, I did find him compelling, like he'd go and meet the press a lot and he sounded like a kind of a pragmatic, common sense guy, maybe very compelling. But, you know, the birther thing to me, I mean, that was it. You know, Obama, uh, Obama wasn't. Well, born. what I loved about the birther thing, and this was a hint, and where where he started finally being yeah. kind of on the horizon there, is that he would say, "I've sent people to Hawaii, my, my people, my people, yeah. and what they're coming back with." It's very disturbing. It's yeah. very, very bad. <laughs> okay, very bad. You know, he never sent anybody. You know, he never sent anybody. Of course not. And you know that he was just lying. Yeah. And everybody knew this. Now, now everybody knew this. It was a okay. joke. It was a joke. Okay. So you start early in the book. Uh, you start going. It's basically the, the other guys running against him. Right. Uh, Rubio. Uh, Rubio looks really bad in this. Yeah. <laughs> he loved SNL, by the way. You know this. I've told you that. I know. I love Collins. I have a Susan Collins quote here. Uh, there's no doubt that the president and I have extremely different styles. <laughs> The shoes. See, that makes me laugh so hard. And this is what I'm laughing throughout this. And and as you say, they're not jokes. No, it's like here. my feeling is, and, and I think, you know, you can obviously speak to this as well as anyone. Um, this is not a funny story at its core. It's not a funny book at its core. It's not a funny time at its core. I mean, the no. stakes are miserably high, but. But there's a thing called dark humor. Well, <laughs> and I think dark humor is an unmined resource from the Trump years. I mean, it, it obviously, you don't want to go up and like cover the White House like it's like, oh, get a load of this. Um, like, I never thought it was particularly funny that, um, you know, he, he, made uh, typos or on his tweets. I'm no, like, oh, that was, wow, what a moron. Like, who cares? No, I make typos. No, but it's like, it, there's a, there is scorn, ridicule, 
that's and ridicule has its place. Correct. But but also it's been unappreciated and I think uncalled out uh, among a lot of the people who have to publicly defend him, even though they privately hate him. But, oh, we have different styles. Or, oh, I don't like the tweet. We have different styles. Have different, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, well, Senator, if you if you maybe, did you know if, that Collins now wants to make Maine an abortion destination? Really? I mean, vacation land. Isn't that what it says on the license plate? Yes. We have a beautiful rocky coastline. If you have to get an abortion, which I made possible so <laughs> by uh, <laughs> confirming Gorsuch. If you, what could you put on the Kavanaugh. license plate? Seriously, like vacation land on the Abortion land. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. There's like a typical joke of yours. So, uh, Rick Scott, <laughs> uh, Senator uh, from Florida now, uh, decides uh, this is post January 6th to uh, present Trump at Mar a Lago with a champion for freedom trophy. <laughs> made it up himself. <laughs> he did. He made it. It's up a bowl. Himself. Like it's a bowl. It's a bowl. Small bowl. It's Very not even that big a bowl. Nope. And then you just write Did Obama ever win a champion for freedom trophy? We think not. <laughs> True. That's I what mean. I like about it. Well, what was great about it, though, was <laughs> Trump was so proud to get this stupid little bowl, and he oh, held course. it up, and Scott was in the picture, and, and they had a big press release, and uh, it was at Mar-a-Lago. It was a very momentous event. I know the president was very moved. Yeah, she announces this. She says in your book, Kaylee McEnany says, we need to be grateful for our president for that. Isn't it refreshing when contrasting it with the awful presidency of President Obama. <laughs> I mean, again, these are direct quotes. I mean, I know. You know. well, the, okay, let me ask you something. When you go into an interview and do you like before think about, I'm going to ask a question that I know will elicit a hilarious answer. Do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not not because I'm trying to make anyone look silly, but the bar of dialogue, the bar, what it was, I mean, people, I mean, politicians, in, in on-the-record settings, talk in complete trope and bullshit yeah. much of the time. Sure. And, and by the way, this isn't a one-party thing. They're I mean, supposed to. They're supposed to, but Democrats just, I mean, quite badly. I mean, unfortunately, Republicans, I mean, unfortunately for them, Republicans for like six, seven years have had to defend the indefensible, which they know full well. But, but no, you just ask questions and you listen and you ask simple follow-ups and you do it quickly. The, the one thing that reporters get in big I think really do themselves a disservice with is the long speech Ooh. to, to, to sort of, cause it gives them the time to think about, all right, what trope is going to go in, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of blame to go around. I don't like the president's style, but I think what we need to be focusing on is Joe Biden's blah, blah, blah. You know, have you, you heard that a lot? Yeah, of course. I mean, they all do. I mean, there, there have been, there were so many scenes over the years though, where Trump would do something egregious. Uh, like I remember there's actually a scene in the book, you remember the Lafayette Park thing? He sends the, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. pull you there. Um, you were, were you there? I was there. You were there. That's yeah, right. In the there. book, you were there. Yeah, I was there. And then he goes to do the uh, Bible, does the Bible uh, upside down Bible. Terrible thing. It was a terrible thing to watch. I mean, it was, you know, everyone saw it on TV, but I mean, it was like, oh, okay, this is Banana Republic. This is really right. bad. And Horses, it's, like, uh, it's like what you imagine Chicago in 68 was like, you know, just something just tipping right over the rails. And so, all right, Republicans can't be happy about this, right? I mean, this is like 
authoritarian behavior. So everyone marches up to the Hill the next day. It was a Tuesday, the caucus meetings, you know, the Senate people, and everyone parks themselves right outside the Republican caucus room. This is reporters. Reporters. And you have the parade of people pretending to be on the phone. That's like, sorry, I can't talk. Uh, Sorry, I didn't see the tweet. It's not a tweet. It's on. We're we're doing the pinky thumb. The pinky thumb. Yep. But they, I did that. You know, I used to do that. Oh, of course. I would do the pinky thumb though. Oh, so you wouldn't even have a phone in your hand. No, I would do a pinky thumb (laughs) and I go, sorry. And I point to the pinky thumb. (laughs) That's very smart. So you don't even need the instrument. No. Then they'd go, okay, he's not going to say anything. And also, it's funny. (laughs) It's funny. Yeah. 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 So I go, no. No, but it's a joke. I mean, it's it's embarrassing. And, you know, they just want to get into the lunch. And sorry, sorry, I didn't see it. Sorry, I didn't see it. Sorry, I didn't see it. Yeah. I remember actually Ted Cruz right after that said, um, he was the only one who kind of answered. Oh, oh, he actually gave an aggressive answer. He did. He said, um, someone said, so Senator Cruz, what did you think of the conduct, you know, outside on Lafayette Square yesterday? Of, of so he goes, I thought it was um, it was a terrible conduct by the protesters or something. It was like it, worse than that. It was worse. Like disgrace. A disgrace. <laughs> by the protesters. Yeah. So. Oh, I know the one I wanted to ask you. So that where I, I'm thinking like, you're, you know, this is going to get a funny answer. You're, you're talking to Trump. And you went like, how are you, how's it going to be with you on empathy? Mm. No, no, here's how I framed it. Okay. Here's how I framed it. I said, so we're sitting on his plane and Mm -hmm. this was, I mean, late 2015. So he was the front runner. Uh, I kind of put off writing about him and my, no one at the Times Magazine, that's where it was. They said, all right, finally, I guess we probably got to do this. And so he, he was very generous with his time and access and everything. I spent like all this time in on his plane, in his cars, at his clubs, in his house, or at Trump Tower, everything. So we had this long flight from Dallas to um, L.A. because there was a debate. And he's just sitting there, basically spends the entire f- flight eating and looking up at the TV, watching himself at this rally he just did in Dallas. And whenever the cable news channel stopped talking about him, um, he would just flip to the other one and they'd inevitably talk, be talking about him. And, you know, he just did this for much of the, the flight. And I wanted, yeah, I was trying to ask him questions. And I said, finally, um, Mr. Trump, you know, every president has a moment of like what they're remembered for, kind of an empathetic moment that where they kind of are remembered for just sort of identifying with the victim, like Obama during like, uh, you know, when Charleston, when Charleston yes. And, you know, George W. Bush after 9-11, you know, went down to ground zero. I mean, there, there are moments like that. Uh, how are you going to do that? How like, are you going to, how do you think you'll rise to an occasion like that? And he said, oh, and I think I used the word empathy in the mm, question. Right, he, right. I said, like presidential empathy moment. He goes, and he doesn't really look up from the TV. He goes, oh yeah, empathy. You, you got to have empathy. I, I think empathy will won't be one of the strongest things about Trump. And then he went back to watching. And then I think literally the first next thing out of his mouth was this asshole hates me. And it was some guy. Can you say that on your show? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And so he points up and there was some, there was some pundit who has been very nasty to him. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was literally the next thing. But what was it? Empathy will. Empathy will be one of the strongest (laughs) things about Trump. I think was about Trump. Yes. About Trump. Yep. Yeah, that was a bizarre few weeks. Because here's a guy. Now, he is pathological. Yeah. And empathy is he's incapable, right? No one's ever seen it, right? No. Yeah. I mean, no. Remember uh, in El Paso? He went down there. Oh. The. Uh, oh, yeah. The shooting. Mass, uh, mass yeah. shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he took a picture with a baby who was orphaned. 
in the shooting and he did a he just did a huge grin and a thumbs up yeah i think there was something he was also pissed because like um in the hospital like they weren't getting a picture of like he got some applause in the hospital but they weren't letting the press in to see it and yeah i remember reading that somewhere <laughs> okay okay the basically the premise of this this whole book thank you for your servitude donald trump's washington and the price of submission this is a way of viewing the Trump administration in terms of how the Republicans just bailed in terms of having any integrity except for the handful, less than a handful that you right. yeah. uh, were able to mention. <laughs> but this enabled this. A hundred percent. And I had, you know, I had colleagues, Republican colleagues, and I obviously left the Senate, but like during, after the election, I couldn't believe it. I would actually get in touch with them and go, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Like around certification, that kind of thing. Certification, especially. Yeah. Um, I had a friend who signed on and I went like, you can't, this will haunt you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And then the next day after he signed on, that's when the Raffensperger tape oh, okay. came out. And I go, yeah. and I just, I texted him like, um, have you seen that? No. Did he come around then? You know what? If I if I tell you what he did, all right, don't we'll figure out who. He yeah, is. I, don't, I don't. I won't. Or my audience will. Yeah. So I don't want to do that. Yeah, because you know, if I were a real reporter, I would press you. But we're friends. Actually, no, we're not friends. Wait, we're not friends. So I'm going to add. No, I won't. Yeah, see, now you're getting confused about what you're. Like, I'm it's very confused. confused. It was supposed to be that. You know, was my I, problem. I'm going to call Mandy. She'll <laughs> okay. clarify. Okay, so this starts with. Okay, Lindsey Graham uh, is. Um, you know, I know Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay's funny. He's sure. the funniest. Uh, very approachable. Uh, yeah, very approachable. Yeah. I've approached him. Many, many times. And and you, you write in the book that he told you, he said, you should have seen me uh, in my youth. There was no question that I was uh, I was heterosexual. Okay. I wasn't asking. But yeah. Yeah, he was. He was actually asked. But you quote him as saying, "Well, he this was. Yeah, he he talked to. I think a report. He told the reporter who brought this up. I think explicitly. I, I don't remember where this was, but he said, um, "Yeah, I'm I'm not gay. I hate to disappoint. Uh, the people will be like committing suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. They'll be so disappointed to hear that. I mean, you know, it really takes it out a few notches there. But um, well, Lindsay has a, a sense of humor. Yeah, sure. So once I'm. Uh, it's winter. Uh, we're about to go on vacation for the, the Christmas break. And he says, uh, you going anywhere for sun with your family? And I said, yeah, we're actually going to Vieques in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And he said, do two fundraisers, one for the people who are for statehood, one for the people who are against <laughs> statehood. They never talk to each other. <laughs> you know, he's, that's a kind that's a great Lindsay line. Isn't it? Because his Perfect. joke about himself is I'm shameless. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that and that that kind of comes out in all your discussions with him. Also, yeah. once I was uh, when he was running for president, I was next to him in the bathroom, the Senate bathroom. And I said, uh, Lindsay, if I were a Republican, I'd be voting for you in the primary because that's my problem. <laughs> I mean, he's very quick. He's very quick, very, very quick. funny. But yeah. man, uh, he's sort of needy. I mean, he has to be in the Senate. Uh, you know, one of your colleagues said exactly that. He said, actually, he said there is no one who needs to be in the U.S. Senate. More than Lindsey Graham. And, and you know, the, the crude way of looking at this is, oh, well, he doesn't have a family. He's got nothing else in his life and so forth. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But, I mean, this is a guy who just 
gets a sustenance from, I mean, he says, I got to be at the dice table. This is, he said, I, I, I'm addicted. I mean, like McCain was too. We got McCain was a, McCain was addicted. Dice. He liked the dice uh, table and Lindsay, you know, Lindsay looked for alpha. And dogs. of course, here's a tension here because McCain hated Trump. Yeah. Wasn't shy about it. And uh, Lindsay and, and, uh, and McCain were besties. Right? Three amigos with Lieberman. With Lieberman. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and McCain expresses disappointment. He did at the end. He did. Yeah. He did privately. I mean, you know, he, the stuff that sort of dribbled out about public, the, the public stuff were, you know, McCain saying, uh, do you really have to say how good of a fucking golfer he is? <laughs> yeah, That's Graham, right. That's one. <laughs> yeah. Cause Graham couldn't just like, you know, be sycophantic with Trump, like on policy. And he says, thank God for you. And thank God for you fixing all of Obama's messes. Uh, he's like, and man, you're a great golfer. You're a great, and your courses are so beautiful. And he'd actually go on Twitter and say, what a spectacular golf course, Trump international, wherever it is, is. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that really tipped McCain over. McCain could be funny. Sure. He also, yeah. You know, he could yell at you too. Yeah. But Absolutely. That was him. No, I, I, I really like McCain. I mean, yeah. I'm a cliche that way. I mean, reporters. No, no. I, he's a, he's a fascinating guy. Very, uh, you know, complicated. And yet you point out, for example, um, in 10, when he, ran, when he ran for re-election, he became so anti-immigration. Uh, yeah. <laughs> build that wall, build that yeah. wall, build that wall. Yeah. So yeah. He was a politician. He had to be there. He picked Sarah Palin. I mean, you know, well, he, he didn't think she was the most qualified. I mean, I, I think. No, he wanted to pick Lieberman. He wanted to pick Lieberman. Yeah. Man, it would, you know, they convinced him that, that the anti-abortion, whatever, would, would, would just rebel inside the party, and that would be that. Well, he maybe turned out to be right, maybe. I don't know. Uh, well, he lost maybe. anyway, didn't he? He lost. <laughs> I mean, you know, for about a week, uh, Sarah Palin supposedly electrified the Republican Party. At that convention speech. Absolutely. And I was in, running. In St. Paul. In St. Paul, and I was running for the Senate at the time, mm -hmm. and I had never run for office before. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her and listened to her, uh, and everyone got nervous. She was terrific. Speech at the, yeah. the speech was amazing. Yeah. I said, "Don't worry, right? She doesn't know anything. She's going to be terrible." Because I was running for the first time, mm -hmm. and there was stuff I didn't know about mm -hmm. politics or stuff like that, yeah. and I knew that that was hard. Mm -hmm. But I knew that she wasn't someone who seemed to have a strong uh, intellectual <laughs> bent. Really? You pegged and, her for that? Huh? Yes. Uh, I'm a judge of character. You're a good judge of character. Absolutely. Why, we're friends. Oh, wait a minute. Shh. Ron Johnson mm. told the Trump rally in Jamesville that Biden supporters, quote, don't particularly love America. Mm -hmm. I love shit like that. That is amazing. Well, that's what's great about this book is that you kind of collect Stupid shit went by so fast it every went, day, yeah, every day during Trump, one or two or three things. And yep. you forget them. And but you <laughs> in this book, you get to laugh, you know, you know, I will say I had a great team of researchers. Um, really? Well, they work for a company called Google.com. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you no, but you know you you know, you you, again, you forget stuff. Except but, didn't you? Didn't you? You may forget stuff, but you were. Did, how? When did you know this was your book? Well, that's a well. Question. When did I know I was writing a book, or that the book would be focused on the enablers? Either one. Uh, uh, the second one. The second. second one was was fairly late in the game, and uh, I owe a great debt of gratitude to my editor uh, Scott Moyers. I mean, I had a lot of material. I mean, I've been covering this shit for that's what a I'm long saying. time. I mean, I. You know, I've been working and, you know, so I've had a lot of exposure. I mean, I've been in events, I've been in rooms, I've been around things happening, been around Trump. I mean, so I had material. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll just do this town for the Trump years, mm-hmm. you know, because this town was successful. This town was a book was that the you first wrote book, about first Washington, Washington Moray. Yeah. And it did, it did well. And I figured, all right, you know, this is all this colorful shit. And then I was writing and um, Scott Moyers, uh, my editor at Penguin, very encouraging. It's like, this is great. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then, you know, about 50,000 words in, he said, all right, at this point, we need to figure out what the book's about. And from what I can tell from the material, <laughs> I mean, basically, I'm Boy, this is an editor doing more no, than anything no, 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 I've no. ever I heard think, an editor do. <laughs> well, what was great was he, <laughs> Scott said, look, you, with the focus, you, you have to, um, I mean, it's many authors, and I'm one of them will tell you that you don't really know what the book's about until you're fairly far in. And he said, uh, you know, these guys are the most interesting. That's and, not, not necessarily true. Well, he, I, I thought, look, I didn't want to kill write. a mockingbird. <laughs> she knew what she was doing. Probably. Yeah. Oh, there's no question. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Okay. The, not in every case, but I, look, I didn't want to write a Trump book. I thought Trump was uninteresting. I thought he'd been done to death. Well, that's why this is, this is really fun to read because it's not, it's so not much Trump. about Trump. It's no. about his enablers. Correct. Yeah. That, that's that's what this book is about. And it's shameful. And each one after another <laughs> looks so stupid. Yeah. Uh, Paul Ryan looks stupid. Uh, Lindsey Graham looks stupid. Uh, Nikki Haley looks stupid. Ruby looks stupid. Oh, I, this is funny. This is <laughs> uh, Spicer talking about how great the Trump Hotel was before oh. he gets in. Mm-hmm. He, says, <laughs> he says, I think it's symbolic of the kind of government that's been around. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was true. Uh, and there's Conway. Uh, the family, beginning with President Trump, have made financial sacrifices to be president of the United States. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, what I, you know, uh, Jared came back with how much from uh, Cutter? Oh, Two billion? Yeah. Two billion? Yeah, it was so much. Yeah. Can you imagine if, like, Bill Clinton's son-in-law did that? Like 20, I mean, I, I hate like the construction where, hey, can you imagine if Obama did that? I mean, it's like you could do that forever. But. During during the uh, which impeachment was, I think, the first one, uh, they were going after Hunter Biden, of course, because that, that was the whole point. Right? That was yeah. the whole point. Yeah. And I just kept telling my colleagues, just talk about Jared and Ivanka. And they wouldn't do it because they yeah. wanted to be above yeah. it. Yeah. Also, you don't want to get the family involved. So I, I submitted a, a question to a couple of my former Democratic colleagues during the impeachment. I, I, I said, you know, the, the Trump defense team kept saying that uh, Trump was really worried about corruption in Ukraine. And uh, the question I submitted was, can you point to any other point in his lifetime when Donald Trump was concerned with corruption? <laughs> And okay, that's a really good question. That would—I <laughs> mean, I, I actually think for the impeachment that was 
I, I think, you know, a, a real, real occupational failing um, among senators, congressmen, you know, when you're questioning witnesses or reporters, when you're questioning subjects, sources, whatever, is asking too long questions. And, and again, it's like if you ask a very quick and simple question, they don't have time to think. Well, I mean, like, you know, the way you question Jeff Sessions, I mean, that that elicited. That actually wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, it was me. It was him. I asked, you asked the question, so you get credit. But I didn't even ask the question that he answered. I don't know if, if people give me amazing credit for you're the reason that Mueller ended up being the guy. And I went, well, yeah. But what I did was I said to Sessions, if it turned out that people in the Trump campaign, surrogates, had uh, interacted with the Russians, would you recuse yourself? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I did not have any. <laughs> I didn't even ask him that. Yeah. And then it turned out he did. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're. So I, I, I should not give myself credit for that. Okay, here's a quote I took out. Will you please like me? Oh, that was Trump. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just miss so much stuff. <laughs> in this this is Trump when his approval ratings among suburban women, especially, were just like just in the in the toilet. And here's a he, here here's from the book. Uh, Will you please like me? He pleaded <laughs> from the stage uh, at an October rally in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So much of like the blizzard of material has been lost to the blizzard of material, right? I right. mean, even recently in the That's hearing- what's great about the book, which yeah. is that you can't remember what happened last week because in in the interim, eight terrible things or yeah. ridiculous things have happened. It's- and and then it's also you don't want to ever go back and Google ridiculous things that Trump no, no no so you can't do that so you, then you go like wow I wish I could enjoy all the awful things he, no, that happened I mean, and then you get to do this because you write in a way that's fun and funny you know what I wish I had time to do this happened too recently to put in the book it happened like a few weeks ago yeah which I don't I think I I just cannot believe people are not lingering on just a little bit in the January sixth committee interview with Jared, where he was asked about, you know, Cipollone, who said, you know, kept saying, you know, this is wrong, you know, January 6th is wrong. And Jared at one point sort of said, yeah, I thought he was showboating because, you know, I was just mostly just preoccupied with like giving people pardons. (laughs) That was my assignment now. I wasn't really engaged in this. I was just focused on finding people that we should pardon. That was his portfolio. It's like, oh, okay, Judge Janine's ex-husband, got to pardon him. You know, all right, do we do the Bannon thing here? Do we do this donor here? Or do we do Flynn here? I mean, it's just one after another. The Kushner saying he was in charge of pardons. Well, of course, because I mean, there's money in pardons. I mean, just the, he, he just was so, look, I was just really busy finding people to pardon. That was the other thing. I remember <laughs> Trump on his final plane ride to Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. They reported what his in-flight meal was, which was steak over cheesy grits with an egg over. I mean, it was it was very nutritious. It's I, hard to believe he's overweight. Well, it's hard to believe he's like he doesn't doesn't appear to have major health problems. I mean, there is someone in your book who says we're just waiting for him to die, right? A Republican, <laughs> a Republican congressman. Mm-hmm. Said that he said we have no <laughs> we have no plan to deal with him. I mean, you know, he's a problem for them. You know, this he, is post uh, January sixth. Yeah, we have no plan. And then this congressman, I don't endorse this, but this congressman said we're just waiting for him to die. That's our only plan. And he was a hundred percent serious. And that, to me, as a reader, was a laugh. It, yeah, it's dark, um, <laughs> but it goes to the passivity of 
these Republicans. Very, that's a good right? point. No, it's just like, we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to sit back and wait for God to intervene. This one made me laugh. So it's Rubio. Um, <laughs> uh, Rubio thinks he's really, he's, he's making a move oh, in yeah. the campaign. Yes, right? he is. Yeah. And uh, he gets excited about an, an endorsement. Hmm. But he says, we got to me. Oh, this was Nevada. <laughs> we we yeah. got Pat Toomey. Yep. And to me, that's just hilarious. <laughs> that, that, Amazingly, <laughs> the voters of the Republican voters of Nevada, the caucus voters, were not following Pat Toomey's lead. But what was funny was that was when so well, Rubio was seen as the guy to stop Trump, right? And mm -hmm. Trump was just, you know, raking up these big victories like all over the country. And Nevada was like the last stand, I guess, for Rubio and the establishment kept endorsing him. And every day they'd roll out new endorsements like, oh, we got Lamar Alexander. We got Bob Dole, <laughs> Lamar Alexander, George Pataki. And I remember I was with Rubio. I was doing a story on him and, and I was sitting next to him on his pl campaign plane. We we're going from like Reno to Vegas or Re Vegas to Reno. I forget which direction. And, you know, he had like a plane load of these big time endorses like the lieutenant governor of Nevada just came out for him and he goes, we can feel their momentum. And, you know, we got to me today. We got Pat <laughs> we to me. me. Yeah. And again, I mean, talk about a powerhouse in Nevada. Well, I guess that must happen. Like you're in the campaign and an aide say, we got Pat to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he's yeah. excited for the moment and he's with Mark <laughs> Leibovich and he goes, mm -hmm. uh, we, we just got Pat to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's that's why i laugh at that line <laughs> thank you for recognizing that see to me it's all in the interstitial details like that uh, but to me that's just hilarious <laughs> isn't it we got pat to me <laughs> i mean it would be one thing if we're going from jonestown pennsylvania johnstown pennsylvania to aliquippa pennsylvania oh and then uh, rubio did the uh, small hands thing yeah, but the joke killed. He was at a, it was a college in Virginia somewhere. Did it? I remember as the I college recall, kids loved it. Did Ruby? Ruby, I think, in the book expresses some regret. Yeah, a little bit about his conduct. Yeah, he did. Yeah, about, he did. well, about that specific joke, was it? Uh, uh, just his general conduct, getting into the mud because you know he has children, doesn't want to be remembered that way. I mean, Rubio was, I think, sincere, like in his utter despair over what. Trump had done to him and done to the party. And, you know, when I first got to know Rubio, I mean, he, he, did, he talked like a real true believer as far as his family story coming from Cuba and like, you know, what, what it's terrible. He said, there's a great danger in having a big charismatic leader who has authoritarian tendencies like Fidel Castro. And there's going to be a reckoning in the Republican party for years to come about how we th fell in with this guy, meaning Trump. And he wasn't saying we then because he was quitting the Senate. He had announced his you know, oh, that's right. running again, yeah, yeah. said, I, I would, you know, as someone's told the Washington Post, a friend of his, you know, he's miserable. He'll, he'll be thrilled to be out. And, you know, then he realized a couple months later, I mean, shit, I, I won't have a parking space come. Uh, I won't have a huge staff. I won't have a driver. I won't have. He course corrected. And you know what his reason was? Now that it's clear that the Democratic nominee will be Hillary Clinton. Because, you know, that came out of nowhere. No one saw that. <laughs> you know, he said, oh, well, I can't, I can't, you know, I don't trust this guy with a nuclear code, but I cannot imagine, cannot imagine who, who could have thought that Hillary Clinton would, would be the, the nominee, nominee of the Democratic 16. Party. Uh, no one comes off, well, as I said, very, very few people, few people. come off very good. Uh, Barr. Mm-hmm. 
Barr completely, completely, completely mischaracterizes the Mueller report. Yeah. And uh, you say, this would uh, quickly become total exoneration. <laughs> Trump's mm-hmm. off-tweeted words. Hey, wait, but Mueller explicitly claimed the opposite. He even complained to Barr in a dreaded italics, sharply worded letter. (laughs) And you write a sharply worded letter. It's, it's, you know, Democrats, by the way, over the years have made great use of a sharply worded letter. They wrote a lot of them to Trump. Yeah, Mueller was uh, a little bit of a disappointment. Mm. What is the downside? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) What is the downside for humoring him? (laughs) For this little bit of time, a senior Republican official was quoted as saying in the Washington Post, the blind quote oft repeated. This was right after the election, right? Yeah, after the election before January 6th. What is the downside for humoring him before this little bit of time? Oh, I don't know. Uh, There's a little bin we have over here for the quotes that don't age well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we can put that. Who was that? Oh, we don't know. Oh, we don't know. It, 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 it was quoted over and over and over. It took on a life of its own. And, you know, it's like, look, it's uh, the Republican platform was humoring him. We'll be right back with Mark Leibovich, author of the number one New York Times bestseller. Thank you for your servitude. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. We're back with Mark Leibovich. We'll skip ahead past the early pandemic days. (laughs) Trump's inability to feel or even fake empathy. (laughs) Despite what he told me. That's right. Okay, we talked a little bit about that, uh, the, uh, the, the faking empathy. The inability to handle the coronavirus. I mean, I think any malignant narcissist of even average intelligence would have understood this is the biggest global crisis we've had. This means <laughs> really that I have to lead. And, and by the way, if I do this well, I will be reelected. Shoo-in. I Absolute am a fucking shoo-in. shoo-in. It, this is so he immediately puts it to the states. Immediately just gives it to the states because he doesn't want to take any. But this is like Roosevelt, FDR after Pearl Harbor, saying this is really kind of Hawaii's problem. <laughs> you know, you're right though. By the way, I mean this was everyone was like, oh, he's been dealt a terrible hand. 
I mean, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yeah, no one wanted the coronavirus. I mean, that was a bad hand that we were all dealt and continue to be dealt. However, from a pure political standpoint, I mean, this is a classic crises that just well, baseline governors, acceptable. Governors, as you point out, as you point out, governors got kudos oh, for handling both it. parties. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're stu- I mean, you know, Andrew Cuomo, just despite oh, everything and then yeah. before times was, you know, he was a, should we run for president? You know, whatever. But uh, but other Republican governors, Absolutely. Hogan. Well, Larry Hogan, Charlie Baker, uh yeah. Yeah, no, but well, yes, you're right. There were many Republicans who 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 gained it. And then many who didn't, of course. Yeah, there were some. And Although, you know, you could argue, you could argue that from a different perspective in the way the Republican Party of today thinks and the Florida electorate thinks, you know, Ron DeSantis may be benefited. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Well, he'll probably be reelected. And- well, probably. It's not a sure thing. Really? Well, Charlie Crist, I mean, there was some pretty close polls. Is it? Good. Yeah. yeah Good. Yeah. I don't, don't like him. Hmm. Uh, okay. Damn. So, <laughs> so not you don't like Trump. You don't like DeSantis. So what, you're a Pence guy? Is that? Uh, what the hell is with Pence? You know, we know now that Trump thought it was justified <laughs> that the crowd, he liked the idea of the crowd, then the crowd wanted to hang him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, if I'm Pence. That what? would piss me off. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. That would piss me off. Especially a guy who thinks that empathy is such a strong suit. You know, man, was he uh, what's what's the word for how he was the vice president? What would you uh, you're a good wordsmith? You know, he was very like, loyal. He was no, uh, you what's know, the downside <laughs> of what no. he was, uh, you know, he was just uh, he was a doormat. He was. Well, no, what was interesting about him? Okay, that's better. What was interesting about him <laughs> is uh, someone was re- I had forgotten I'd written it the other day. Someone read it on TV, but he. Uh, Pence used to talk about the broad-shouldered leadership of Trump. That was like, he said it like 18 <laughs> times. I admire the strongness of my president and our president. And they, they what a strong strength. But he kept talking, whatever he said, <laughs> okay. strength, the strength. Okay. I mean, but he kept talking about the broad-shoulders leadership of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and that was just weird. He physically does have broad shoulders, <laughs> doesn't he? I mean, at least. I don't know if he was being literal. I know, but. It's not. It was just, it was, uh, I mean, there's a great, okay. So there's a good portion, like maybe four or five pages here is devoted to that incredible, incredible, almost surreal cabinet meeting in 2017. It was the first meeting of the complete cabinet Mm -hmm. after whoever the last cabinet member to get confirmed was. And basically TV cameras were allowed in for the first 10 minutes or so before they got down to business and, and, you know, Trump was feeling kind of bad about himself and, you know, Mueller, the, the Mueller report, he was just pissed off at everyone. He was in a bad mood. At this point, the Mueller thing. No, oh, but started. he had been appointed. He had He'd been, been appointed, appointed yeah, but, I mean, I, but he was in a bad place. And so uh, his staff decided that at the beginning of the cabinet meeting, it might buck up the president if, if, you know, he got a little special praise while the TV cameras were there. So Reince Priebus kicks it off and talks about the blessing it is. Well, he didn't kick it off, but he, you know, he was the chief of staff, so he kind of was the the ringleader of this. And they would just go around the table, and every cabinet member was called upon to just heap praise. And they just went around one or more over the top of the other. Jim Mattis, to his credit, did not yeah, play. He was the one who was the one to, to piss Trump off. The defense. But 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 God, Pence kicked things off at the beginning and said. 
Mr. President, thank you, thank you, thank you for this and for the, just being respected around the world and for getting things done and delivering on all your promises. I mean, whatever he said, making America's. And just he, he had this, the, obviously, the hushed reverence, the, the bowed head, the um, just the sort of ramrod posture and behind with a sort of like squinty look that would never, no matter what the president was saying, he would just look like this. Like, and you can't see me, but... You know, I, I can for the audience. I mean, just military. He's doing a face exactly like Mike uh, Pence. Like Mike. <laughs> yes, thank you, Al, for <laughs> for illustrating that. Um, but so it was. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was. But the so, reverence, the reverence, the reverence. No, yeah. and he was so loyal to him to the bitter end. And what was interesting is I talked to a bunch of people who know Pence, you know, mainly Republican House members who served with him. And they were always trying to get him to break, like, you know, offline, but without any cameras, they'd be like, Mike, are you in there somewhere? Like, this, you got to know this is nuts, right? You got to, I mean, you know, you're, you're, we've known each other a long time. Like, tell me this isn't like the loony bin it looks like. I mean, you got to be like killing yourself. And the amazing thing about Pence was even privately, except for, I guess, a very small circle, he wouldn't go there because he very smartly knew. That that would back. it would either get back or someone would like say anonymously to the press, you know, yeah, Pence in private thinks he's a real idiot. I mean, even something like that. Well, that's what you were. A lot of people are saying that kind of stuff to right. you. Oh, not about Pence, but yeah, about no, everybody else. Yeah, and that's what's. I, I never got the sense though that that Pence was one of the guys talking shit about Trump, like so so many other people around the White House and the Republican Party. I mean, wh what does Pence think after? Uh, he heard from the Jan through the January 6th uh, you know, hearings that he was happy <laughs> that people wouldn't hang. I don't know. Mike Pence probably doesn't listen to the, the Al Franken podcast. I don't know that. But if someone who does knows him, if Pence ever wants to do a stand-up. <laughs> Can you imagine? If Pence just, that was it. If that was it for for him, that the report that Trump was actually kind of happy that people wanted to hang him. If yeah. that's it, if that makes mm -hmm. him do a 180 mm -hmm. and he wants to go out and do 10 minutes, <laughs> I I will right. write that for him. Oh, it would be. Yeah. You'd think. Right. Oh, but they asked Pence's brother the other at day. A grid, you know, at a gridiron dinner. Right, the next gridiron dinner, uh, we have Mike Pence. <laughs> there, you know, the last gridiron was pretty good. Didn't like, didn't like, was it Christie? Christie gave I think a really it, funny speech, and Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, no, oh, gave a okay. really funny speech. He said he's nuts. I mean, he, they they went there, but they're more, you know. But no, if Pence were to do that, oh boy, no, uh, and and also I think it was Jamie Raskin. Did the did he do the Democratic one? I think he did. Yeah, who's funny? I didn't realize. He yeah, did. and he said something uh, about Christie's book. Oh, <laughs> well, well, Trump, you know, kind of. I mean, Trump <laughs> loves books that don't sell. Well, uh, uh, so did. Well, that's Christie. Uh, apparently, yeah, yeah it didn't do well. I did read the, his books. I read both of the books. I read the book, but uh, so I did an event with Christie. Mm, really, he's yeah. a funny guy. He is. And so I told him, this is, uh, so we meet about a half hour before, before the event. And I said to him, okay, this is how I want to start. Wait, when was this? This was, uh, I don't know, six months ago or something. Mm -hmm. So I say, uh, this is how I want to start. I'm going to say, uh, Governor, uh, I read your book and I was very moved by the chapter <laughs> where uh, you were in the ICU. <laughs> and at one point, you thought you might not make it. And you said, to, you called your wife and you said to her, if they're going to intubate me, I can't 
you can't talk when you're intubated. You, I have to talk to the kids first. And, I, and of course, I'm very moved by that. And of course, you made it. And then I want you to say, thank God I didn't have any comorbidities. <laughs> Did you say that to Christy? Yeah. yeah. And he, Did he play along. He laughed and right, said, good, you good. got it. And, and so, and he understood that I was giving him the punchline. Yeah. And so we did it and he, he got a huge laugh. Oh, that's And then nice. we uh, did a fist bump. Can I just say, because in the book, Trump concurrently was in the ICU at Walter Reed. So they were in the ICU oh, at the right. same time. That's right. That's right. Or they were being treated in the hospital at the same time. And so Trump calls Christie, you know, because he's an empathetic guy to um, see how he's doing. He said, Chris, how are you feeling? I'm worried about you. And after a few minutes, he kind of got to the point of the call, and he said, um, uh, you're not going to say you got this for me, are you? <laughs> he said, you know, because it wouldn't look good. Because, <laughs> you know, he, well, Chris, 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 he writes that in his book. He does. And then I asked him about it in an interview. I, I oh, said, okay. And he said, Oh, that was that was actually the one laugh I had in the ICU. This, <laughs> this, guy, will, this guy will never change. And um, yeah, no, it's uh, it, in, in his telling of it in the book, he gets to it faster. Oh, so you're saying he told it better than I did in the book? In the it book, it happened to him. It happened to him. He's alive. <laughs> It was not a lot of, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're not going to say you got this from me. Or, got right to the point. It well, you know, the president's a busy fair. guy. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot. I mean, because, you know, Christie was like his debate prep guy. They were like in these sure. very small rooms together, presumably. So, Did did you read? You read Christie's I did. book. I did. I did. You know who comes off well in that book? Christie. <laughs> really? Yes. God, it's amazing how did that you notice? Works. Yeah. I underlined. Oh, yeah. You mean every- when he was like, I told the president that he was wrong here. Yeah. I said, Mr. President, you got to get out in front of this coronavirus. Well, and there's also just a lot of people saying like what you talk, you talk to the president that, oh, that really and uh, that really made an impression on him. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And there's just it's. I, I just started highlighting it. <laughs> Did you really? That's yeah, great. because it's uh, I, I think I ha- still have it. Yeah. If we get together ever, I'm going to show you. The highlight of <laughs> self-praise. I mean, it book. is amazing. No, I mean, he was like the consummate self-portrayed adult in the room. It's fun, isn't it? To do this. Yeah. To write about politics and the follow. Yeah, this and- is tough. The Trump years have been tough. I, I, I want to say, I, you know, again. It's it, fun and it's, and it's, it's really dark. disheartening. You know, the stakes dark. are really Really high. high. I mean, if I can be earnest here for a second. Let's do that. No, I mean, over the years, I mean, I was sort of seen as a professional cynic many years. Like I wrote, you know, this book about Washington. This town. And I I come to that honestly. I I concede I'm very cynical about politics and politicians and And the media and our whole world that we inhabit. But the one thing about the Trump years is that it made me realize how much I care and how much my colleagues care. And Frankly, how much a lot of politicians, but probably not enough politicians care. Because this stuff is really for keeps. Like people talk about, oh, the our democracy is at stake. And you know, your first reaction is like, okay, that's overheated. Maybe you want to roll your eyes. But no, it's a hundred percent true. Um, what's going on in state election, you know, with state election boards and state legislatures. And this new piece, uh, thing that the Supreme Court is oh, from North Carolina. North Carolina. Oh, I mean, that's almost existential. Right? Yes. I mean, there's that. We, we overuse existential. No. This is it's, not, not, not 
existential. I mean, that of course is the was it the independent uh, legislature doctrine? Yeah, which is that state legislatures are in charge of federal elections and can basically do anything. Bottom line, it will make it much easier to steal the next election or election. Yeah, it's the piece that that that's exactly what Eastman yeah. wanted them to do. That's serious. This is what gets me angry. And then, you know, people throw around, oh, there's going to be a civil war. And, you know, I don't think, I hope there's not a civil war. Mountain uh, ants things. Well, you know, you hear that and it doesn't sound insane, but they all, I'm pointing to the cover of my book. I'm pointing to, you know, Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell and Rudy Giuliani and Mike Pence and all of them, McCarthy, you know. Lindsay, they all know this. They all, I think on some level, know the stakes a bit, and they are just trying to get through the day-to-day machinations of pleasing Trump or keeping him somewhere in the, I mean, just getting to the next election. You know, Mitch McConnell might be having such despair over, oh, I got to deal with Herschel Walker, but Mitch McConnell got his three Supreme Court judges and, you know, justices, and they all got something out of the deal. I'm not sure they're having fun, and I'm not sure what they think about when they're alone. But um, to me, the stakes are extremely high, and that's what really pisses me off about the people who know better. That was the working title of this book as I was working. People who know better? They all knew better. They all knew better. That could have been the subtitle. Could have been. Yeah. I mean, it sounded a little um, little over the top, but no, look, I whatever. It's judgmental. But the book is, thank you for your servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the price of submission. Great book. Thank you, Al. Congratulations. Thanks. It was fun. Love being on with you. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I meant for the book, not for being on with me. Uh, I, but I, I appreciate the <laughs> congratulations. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. 
Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.